In true crazy people podcast tradition, the zigzags on this episode are pretty interesting. From Aaron Schmuckler getting his ass kicked on the Appalachian Trail by a moody teenager, to improv for business, uh, from a safe job that he loved doing but hated the environment, to helping people and their companies sort of re-engineer their culture. This is a great episode. Stay tuned. All right, you guys, let's get this started then, right? Because really, what could go wrong once you press record? Right? Exactly, what could go wrong? <laughs> it's all going to be very perfect. <laughs> Hey everybody, very welcome to this episode of the Crazy People podcast. And uh, two of the crazy people you already know, but we have a special guest today, and it's none other than Aaron Schmuckler. Now, do you got to help me with that name? Did I pronounce it correctly? Perfectly. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm almost proud. Um... Aaron pronounces it with a German <laughs> accent as well, so it's it's fun. <laughs> but there you there you go. I can do the German accent quite naturally. So. <laughs> hey, Aaron, uh, thanks for, for being on the show. Thanks for being a guest. Oh, thank uh, you for having me. I I, uh, I never mind being called a crazy person. <laughs> You're surrounded by crazy people today. So. <laughs> it's a badge of honor at this podcast. So. <laughs> So before we before we really start, uh, we would um, always like to give our audience a bit of an idea um, who you are, uh, what your background is, and just to you know warm up a little bit. Uh, what my background is, uh, my career, I suppose you could say, started uh, as a, as a lifeguard. Some of my first jobs were uh, as a lifeguard. I took then started taking kids out on backpacking and other wilderness kinds of trips and became a lifeguard instructor um, and a first aid and CPR instructor. Uh, got a little bit of kind of wilderness first aid and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that was my first foray, I suppose, into uh, leadership. And in college, I got uh, pretty heavily into theater, mm -hmm. changed my biology major to a theater major and became a theater director. And that's, uh, nice. that's where, uh, where I got my master's degree. So I was a, a theater director. I, uh, owned a theater company for uh, a while and I've worked in corporate America. I've had a very nonlinear career. Uh, so I worked, uh, I worked in corp a corporate job for a while and, uh, I was doing what I think of as work that I love in a job that I hated teaching, <laughs> uh, teaching theater and business communication at a public high school. And wow, when my wife told me she was pregnant, must be nine years ago now, I just could not abide the idea that my daughter would inherit the prevailing work culture. And because I've had such a nonlinear career, I've worked in a lot of different environments and some of them were fantastic and tons of them were troublingly toxic. Wow. And, uh, and I just mm. decided my daughter couldn't inherit that. And so I started this company with a friend called the yes works where we are dedicated to changing the work culture for the better. Wow. That is Russ. Do you see a common pattern here that, um, what we talked, talk about? So I, I, Here's my thesis. The idea of a linear career is not happening. Yeah, it's <laughs> I a have thing yet of the to past, talk to I think. somebody. <laughs> 
Yeah, the 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 gold watch days are long gone. I remember I remember looking through a catalog being shown, <laughs> you know, th- these are the gifts that you will get if you stick around here long enough and I I did not. <laughs> I did not stick around there long enough. Yeah, see my my grandfather was an engineer on a aircraft carrier in World War II. Came out of World War II and and went to work for a, a large chemical company as an engineer and retired X dozens of years later. And that was like super right in the lane. And, but today I hear so many people who are like, yeah, I started as A and then I was W and then I was B and then I was Q and then I was M for a little while. And then I was, you know, all over the alphabet. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I was not savvy enough at the time to immediately understand why they'd showed me this catalog of, of gifts that I was going to (laughs) get over the course of the next three, five, 10, 15, 20 years. I just remember thinking like, what is this for? And, and being a really (laughs) curious person, uh, I thought about it a lot. And I asked, I asked somebody and they said, Oh, they, they, they want you to feel motivated to stick around. And I remember whatever it was, the watch that I saw, I, I remember thinking, yeah, I would like to have that watch. That's a nice watch. I also remember thinking there is no watch in the universe that would affect the decisions that I make about what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. Like what a, what a strange, what a strange thing to do. (laughs) If only I could have a watch, I would stay here for the next 25 years. Hmm. So great. Hmm. No. (laughs) So how did your career happen? How did you zigzag zigzag? And what was the motivator behind it? Because it didn't just happen by accident. I, I, I assume here. Um, and Russ, um, tell me what a Zoom means. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, I I became a lifeguard because that was a cool thing to do, and because I love I love swimming. I was I was a just a, a water bug when I was a kid, so it was it was an easy and obvious early job to take. A friend of mine uh, in high school was a long time. Uh, I got, what were you calling it? An attendee, a long time part of a summer camp. So when we graduated, he said, come and work at this summer camp. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't, do I want to be a camp counselor? Not really. And he said, why don't you, why don't you be camping and wilderness staff? And I was like, oh, well, that, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> What's some of the, what are some of the prerequisites for that? He said, well, you got to be you got to know camping and wilderness kinds of stuff. And I said, I know that kind of stuff. He said, you got to be a lifeguard. And I said, well, I am a lifeguard. And so that's how that happened. And I got, uh, I got my ass handed to me on my first trip, uh, trying to lead kids up a mountain. One of these, one of these, uh, campers carrying, a, a a stupid heavy backpack, which was stupid heavy because she had put things in it that plug in for example and we're on the Appalachian Trail <laughs> where there is no electricity uh and I, I you know she stopped halfway up the initial mountain uh, you know our first climb she stopped halfway up and said I'm not going anywhere and I said what do you, what do you mean you're not going anywhere and she said I just what I'm tired I'm not going anywhere and I said well what are you going to do she said I don't care that's your problem <laughs> your problem and what do you, like we've got we've got 20 miles to cover over the next few days. And if we don't cover those miles, we're not going to get picked up. The bus that brought us here over here, that, that bus is gone. What do you intend? And I, I tried cajoling her and I tried 
kind of threatening her, not with what I was going to do, but just simply what nature was going to do. It's going to get dark. What do you get? She would not budge until her friends came over and emptied her backpack and she, and, and just distributed the stuff that she had in her backpack amongst themselves. And they headed up the mountain without her. They said, we got your stuff. Come on and follow, follow us. And that was one of my most important um, and and at the time, kind of embarrassing <laughs> lessons in leadership. I remember it, it was humbling, and I thought uh, at the time, you know what? How old was I? I was I was uh, I, I was eighteen, and I kind of uh, I I've never been a fan of humbling experiences that I didn't know what to learn from them because <laughs> 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 they're just painful. Yeah. That one, that one, I thought there is, the, uh, you know, I took some of the immediate lessons very quickly. And I thought these are, there are even deeper lessons here for me to learn. So I don't mind being humbled. This is kind of, this is this leading people thing is kind of got me hooked. And so that is probably part of why I became a theater director. Uh, and I just love, I just love communication. I've grown up with a family that is uh, of exceptional communicators. And, and the, the fact that I can take knowledge and ideas that are in my head and transfer them to you. And the fact that you can take knowledge and ideas that are in your head, even feelings that, that are in your head and transfer them to me with an incredible degree of sophistication. And then the collaboration really that it takes to do it well. I just, that's so fun for me. So that's, that's how I ended up here. Um, as a former PSYOP, uh, do you know what PSYOP yeah. is? Psychological yeah, psychological operations. operations, right? So that's things like, what, what was it? Was it Manuel Noriega that they played music at uh, in his, yeah, and, and, in and, his and, compound? And... But there's more elegant ways too, where they uh, were uh, in, in Bosnia, we distributed radios and um distributed little tapes and then they could play music and every now and, and now and then there would be messaging in between like hey these little child this little science that called mine that's not mine as in yours it's mine as in boom right and <laughs> that kind of stuff yeah it's, uh, uh, it's i mean I, th job. I think of psyops as the the way the military messes with your head yeah right on, on a on a collective basis like yeah, yeah. large scale yeah. messing with your head yeah no, it's uh, it's it's really interesting, but that's what communication does to you, right? It's at the end of the day, it's just communication, and they use different forms of communication. Um, the German psyops cannot lie anymore. We have a bad history with lying, right? <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> and uh, but um, the gray area, not saying stuff, it's already very interesting, right? Just yeah. the, to imply something, and you never really say it. Mm. Yeah, but that's, um, I see that you, communication is an interesting thing for you and um, to do it in a business environment and then go to the theater, I, I believe the mechanics are somewhat similar, but at the core, because the, now you just don't, you don't just communicate, you have to entertain too. So mm. how do you, how do you work with that? Well, I uh, I think there's a lot. Uh, I think that the people who who believe that business communication is only about the transfer of technical data lose. 
And I, I forget who it was who said that we make decisions, we make decisions emotionally, and then we justify them intellectually. There's a tremendous amount of truth to that. And uh, I think that there's a, there's a certain amount of the way I was brought up to communicate that makes me a dynamic talker, right? And I, and I don't mean that in some kind of woo-woo fashion dynamic that we can't define. I mean that I vary my pitch. I vary my volume. I vary my tone of voice. I vary my cadence. That that things change. So literally yeah. dynamic. Uh, I learned that in part growing up with parents who speak dynamically. I learned that in part through theater. I learned that in part by being a keen observer of the way I'm manipulated by movies. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have been, uh, I feel like I'm shouting into the wind about Uh, in all these years since COVID began is as a theater and film director, I manipulate you with lighting and I manipulate you with sound and people are, uh, are still in poorly lit, uh, poorly lit rooms. And you're, you're uh, Maurice, not in a brightly lit room, but there is a certain drama to the lighting I can see the expression on your face. One of the things that I'm convinced, there's no science that I have to back this up. I am convinced that a large part of what Zoom fatigue is caused by is our is the strain that we put into trying to see people who are poorly lit. Because if I can't see what your face is doing, then I don't know if I can trust you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I can't hear your voice richly and I can't hear the the subtle nuances in tone and 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 resonance then I don't know I can't I can't tell as well what your emotional state is. And so that's a big part of where zoom fatigue comes from. I know that in large measure because of my uh, my experience as a theater director and a film director. I uh, I do better on zoom than most people because I've invested in making sure that I look and sound totally readable yeah. and I'm, and, and my hands are in view <laughs> deliberately <laughs> because though I don't think about it anymore, I'm certainly aware of the fact that if I keep my hands down out of sight for this whole conversation, you're not going to trust me as much. I'm not going to be as convincing. <laughs> so, uh, so there is an awful lot of psyops in telling stories in theater and film. And there's an awful lot of psyops in business, whether that's communicating effectively with your boss, communicating effectively with the people who work, who report to you, communicating effectively with other partners in your ecosystem, whether these are vendors that you're hoping to uh, negotiate a good deal with or your customers that you're hoping to sell to. Uh, this is, this is, uh, it's all psyops because we are social creatures and we're affected so profoundly by the way we receive the other humans. Yeah. The, the, the funny thing, uh, what you say there is, first of all, I want to now desperately show my hands, right? You said that. <laughs> there you go with the style part. Um, and the other part is that, uh, just I think earlier today I had a discussion with my wife and she needs to do a presentation to her significant team. And um, she had a, a Olympian over and he was teaching her and her team about the art of storytelling. 
because mm. relaying facts is one thing, right? And you forget about facts, but you don't forget about how whatever the person was saying to you made you feel, mm -hmm. right? So I had a I had a mentor. He looked like a nutty professor all the way. He had like thin white hair. His glasses were sitting barely on the nose, right? And all the antics of uh, of a person like that. But something that he always managed is he was like, and he. At that time, we were doing M&A, so merchant acquisitions and so on. And he was like, investment is not about the product. The product is okay, much like you said, right? There's some facts that you want to hear and that's that. But everything else is about the people because investors mm -hmm. invest in the teams that they see and the founding teams that they see in front of them. And if they don't know how to tell their story and make it a good argument why they are the right people to get this thing done. The facts can be whatever they want to be. The investor's going to go and take the facts and find somebody else to do it for them, right? Right. So it's, uh, I think it's amazing that, um, and that the, the things that so many people haven't quite gotten yet, that um, yes, the facts are there, but the emotions and, uh, and thinking about it and um, how you react to people and the nose factor, right? It's, it's really, I would say three quarters of the entire story. I, I don't know the numbers. Uh, uh, I can tell you that if, if you're if you're overlooking him. storytelling, <laughs> you are in trouble. Just like you said, people won't remember facts. Yeah. They will remember how you made them feel. I also, uh, I no longer remember exactly how the professor that you were describing fits in. Uh, now I'm starting to put it together again. I do remember the image that you concocted with his white wispy hair. And I thought, oh, kind of like Einstein. And then you talked about his glasses. And I thought, are my glasses sliding down my nose? Uh, the, the imagery of storytelling is, yeah. is huge. So here you are at the theater. How did it get you from the theater to the yes works? Well, th th a couple of pieces of that. One is theater is a hard way to make a living. Um, it's a hard way to make a living in part because there, there's not a lot of money in it. It's a hard way to make a living in part because theater, I don't theater think theater is, live theater is never going to die, but it is not in its heyday. Yeah. And part of what it takes to really become a great success in theater, I don't know that I was up for. Like, I like to be home. Uh, I was, you know, as a married man, I, I didn't necessarily want to, go travel to New York and to LA and to Chicago and all these places where theater is, is most thriving and leave, uh, and leave my life kind of, uh, lead, lead my life as an itinerant. So that created some challenges. And then, as I said, uh, you know, I was, I was teaching theater and business communication in a high school, which mm -hmm. was work that I loved pretty well. Um, and I hated the job the the culture of the public school system where i was working i was not a fan of there were so many policies it was it was no longer governed by humans it was governed by policies that had been put in place to ensure that there was no liability mm -hmm. and yep. it just meant that the system didn't work for any humans it didn't work for the humans who worked there. It didn't work for the humans who had voted to put the the school superintendent in. It didn't work at all 
really for the humans who were being educated and it, I, it eventually just wore me down. And so then, uh, when my wife told me she was pregnant, uh, I took that as an opportunity to go make a difference in an environment that I was controlling. Yeah. So I, I can try my, my business partner and I, we control the environment that we're working in and um, we're helping other people to create environments where people are not going to be pressed out of work that they love because they just can't stand the job. Yeah. I imagine that. That's a, that's a funny thing, right? As soon as that child comes, The first one, right? <laughs> right. You take an, on an entirely yeah. different perspective and you're like, okay, this is not working. <laughs> yeah. Some people kind of hunker down and they, and they decide to take less risk and they, you know, they, they kind of batten down the hatches and, uh, and, and, and do nesting, whether physical or financial. Uh, I kind of did the opposite. I blew, I blew things up. Yeah. I was going to say my, uh, when my, son was born our son i didn't have him she did um i can't do that yet uh but when, when our son was born uh he was five or six months old when i started my first company and it was mm. it was that same story of i i love the thing that i'm doing here for this company and i, and I but i just i know that I don't have a whole bunch of career advancement. It was a, a relatively small department in a large company. There's not a lot of places to go. Uh, it was, we were living on Long Island at the time. So it was like an hour and a half drive each way. I'm like, I could probably use that time better doing something mm -hmm. else. And said, so, yeah, it was, it, it motivated me to take the leap too. So it was, but, but I think to your point, you, you see it as maybe it's going to be a risk, but it doesn't feel like a risk sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it felt, you know, you pardon me if for the kind of ridiculous exaggeration I'm about to go into. And I sometimes find exaggeration clarifying. You know, if there are some people, if, if this is my territory here and there are some people out on the, on the outskirts of my territory doing some things that maybe threaten my well-being a little, then I might I might be tempted to just let it go. But if I've got, if I've got kids to protect, well, then I'm going to armor up and, and mm -hmm. go out and face the danger. Uh, and that's a little bit kind of how it felt. It, it felt like maybe an equivalent risk, but with so much more at stake that it, it became no longer a choice. It was something I was obligated to do. Mm -hmm. Well said. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So tell me. The yes works. What are you guys doing? We think of what we do as company culture engineering because there are uh, the people think of, of culture as kind of this mystery, right? I've talked to a lot of business leaders who are just kind of like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, our culture. And I remember one business leader said, here is our culture and handed me a stack of paper. And it, of course, it had things written on it, but that's that is not. <laughs> That is not what culture is. Culture is how do people in a particular community behave? What are the contagious behaviors in a community? And your, your company is a community. And by the way, all behaviors are contagious. Yeah. So there are all these interdependent, many of them hidden forces that affect the way people behave. And so we've dedicated ourselves to helping leaders to see the matrix so that they know why are people behaving this way? That's one of the 
one of the questions that I get most often is why do my people do X? <laughs> why are my people at each other's throats? Why are my people not being accountable, even though I demonstrate for them every day what accountability looks like? Why, uh, you know, one of the, one of the people that I, uh, I have, uh, it's, it's the week before Christmas. One of the, one of the, the only sales meeting that I've taken this week, aside from basically blocking out my calendar is this man who's, who's got a business that really serves our community and I don't want him to suffer and he is losing people all of a sudden. And he doesn't know why, and I'm helping him. Uh, I mean, I can see already, I can see a lot of the reasons why. So, so there are all these hidden forces that affect the way people behave. And we are helping to the, in phase one of the work that we do, we call prepare the soil. We help the leaders that we work with see what, where are these behaviors coming from for the, the behaviors that they love and the behaviors that they don't in plant the seeds. That's our second phase. We're bringing, we bring eight principles of effective communication and collaboration. We don't just say, here are the eight principles, each each one of them go. We we put people through a, an intensive workshop that even people who hate workshops find f- fun. Not a hundred percent of them, but pretty close. Um, and these eight principles, the each has this kind of a sticky phrase associated with it. it gets a lot of reps uh, through activity. It's very experiential learning, and our clients tell us that those phrases become part of the vernacular of the company without their ever having to do another bit of work about it. It, it just, they, they get stuck in. And years later, we've had a couple of clients say, wait, that's, that's where we got this phrase. We forgot entirely that it came from you. It's just so, so uh, much a part of, of who we are. And we also call them seeds because over time, the companies we work with, evolve those principles into tactics that support those principles. And so then the water, the garden phase is we will bring you tactics to help accelerate that process. Here's a system of how to manage people effectively. Here's a system for how to effectively do problem solving and innovation when that is a priority for you. And we're working with a software company right now on, uh, again, a term I don't really like is soft skills. Uh, because I think like company culture, soft skills means it's a mystery. It's all squishy, but there are real specific tactical, practical, essentially engineered algorithms that make some people socially adept and other people interpersonally inept. So yeah. we're helping we're helping them become more and more interpersonally adept so that they can uh, really serve their clients well. That is that is very interesting. I mean, I, I worked in in a number of startups and I consulted a number of startups. And it's I think the what people really underestimate, especially founders and, and people in leadership and, and so on, and is that um, it all starts with them. They are genesis when it comes to company culture, right? They yeah. are the ones that have to live, breathe, and speak whatever culture it is that they want to see in their employees, because I I think, and please tell me what you think about this is I think that leaders so many times or managers or whatever, right? Not every manager is a leader. Um, But I think what they all underestimate is that even today, people look at them 
and they take their cues from them. So if you are misbehaving, Absolutely. that's what they're going to do, right? The, uh, 100% true. Um, and if you, if you are not giving what you are expecting back, then uh, even more so, people will yeah. come will become instantly resentful. Yeah, and and something that I that I've learned to so in a company that I work for now, um, people are very young, right? People are in their early mid twenties, and um, but what I realized, and I think what many underestimate is their filters and that might be a generational thing i don't know if i was that apt inept at at that point in time in my in my life and i hope i used the right word um to really filter out the bs that somebody would throw at me and seeing my through it i feel like the 20 year olds now they are Mm. so well trained with everything that they do and they have their goals and whatever they really see through right through you if you don't are authentic with what you do and with your actions and if you don't lift that right yeah you know if, if people talk about uh lately they've been talking about the the younger generations as being uh what's the word that that they use uh, they're entitled right they talk about them as being entitled uh, i don't i don't see it that way uh, what i see and i think this is very related to what you're saying maurice is there were fewer people when I think you and I were growing up who would simply say to the leader that that's bullshit. Um, We might think it, but we wouldn't say it not directly to them. Instead we'd have the meeting after the meeting where we'd leave the office and then we'd turn to each other and say, that was bullshit. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I don't think this is so much entitlement as it is a, a, just a, a more concrete, less abstracted world because maybe because in part of social media, everything is so transparent, the, the, there's a additional transparency. And then I think another thing that leads old fogies like us to call younger generations entitled is that there are options now that we didn't have. There are more human and more humane workplaces. So yeah. if, if I can have what I want over here, then why would I tolerate what I don't want here? That's not entitlement. That's called options. And so, you know, it's, it's I imagine, you know, every time somebody, I hear somebody talk about the younger generation as being entitled, I, I will sometimes ask them, so are you telling me that if you were a miner in a, in one of those company store kind of operations where you are getting further and further into debt by working for this company, in debt to the company, that you wouldn't choose, if you could, to go work someplace else that had a better, more favorable system? Would you consider yourself entitled or would you just consider yourself intelligent? Yeah. It's, I, I... it's the free market. And the free market has freed up some. That's that's what's going on. Yeah, I, I I personally I like working with the younger generations because I think they are so much smarter than I was at that time. <laughs> I was I, I came out of school and I was like yeah. And then I I got drafted into the army, which at the time in Germany you still that's what's still happening. And I was like okay, I'm going to the army, I guess. Yeah. And then 
what that was there. I was like, hey, they pay me. I can do stuff. Let's stick around for a couple of years and then figure out what we're going to do, right? And um, that's my dog coming in. He's like, hey, why are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, it, I got, it got started from there. So if I can just imagine, and I'm, sometimes I'm, I don't want to see jealous, but I'm so happy for them that they, have, they seem to have a compass already. That they know where to go, what to do, and what to achieve that I didn't have at that time. It took me years to get yeah. there, right? Yeah. Well, I remember my first job after college, The in the interview, in the job interview, they said, where, what do you want to be doing in five years? Where do you want to be in five years? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's five years from now. The funny thing is nobody asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> If I'd known that question was going to be on the test, I would have studied for it. Come on, man. Yeah. So how does it work? How do you go in um, with those companies and how do you achieve that turnaround for them? How do you, what are your steps? The, the sales process itself, I have, uh, I'm committed that it's going to be valuable to the leader that I'm talking to. If they decide not to work with us, the idea is that they come out ahead with some really important insights. and then. In this, in this prepare the soil portion, we do things like stakeholder interviews. We interview employees. We interview uh, people on the front lines and supervisors. We interview other stakeholders like customers. Uh, one thing that we do that I've never heard anybody else doing is we, we will interview their vendors and we'll learn what's going on over there. How do you experience this place? One of our, one company that decided not to work with us many years ago came to us because they said, uh, we just lost Amazon Web Services as a client because what they said to us is, you all are a collection of individuals uh, and, and not a team. And that puts us at risk because every single person becomes a single point of failure. So we will do a deep dive investigation, including interviews, looking mm -hmm. at sign, honestly, looking at signs on the wall looking at handwritten notes on the microwave. So we've seen, we've gained some important insights from handwritten notes on the microwave about how are things and why are things the way that they are. There are a lot of companies that do uh, culture surveys. One of the reasons that we do culture survey, we don't do culture surveys is that two, two, two key reasons. One is it evaluates trailing indicators, right? In other words, my house burned down. Okay, I know that there was a hazard, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, there's a there's a pile of kerosene smoked uh, soaked rags in the corner. Well, that's a leading indicator that my house might burn down. I would rather notice the kerosene rags than the smoldering remains of my house. The other reason is that it treats everybody's voice as the same, right? If if I am an employee who you wish you'd never hired and you've been looking for an excuse to fire me and I say, I don't like X because of Y, and then the thing is anonymized and Russ at the same time, who is an employee uh, whom you wish you could duplicate, you know, man, this was the best hiring decision we ever made. If he says, I do like X, especially because of Y, his, his voice is uh is treated with the same value that mine is i'm curious about your opinion this what i see in in business more and more is that people devalue conversation 
So I'm I'm doing sales now, and I rather talk to people. Even though I'm the marketing guy, right? I I don't use the PowerPoint that I prepared for sales in my sales conversations. Yeah, because I rather talk to my prospects and, yes. and get to know what they are all about instead of it. showing them some slides that they can read by themselves, right? Yeah, even on and, Zoom, I take handwritten notes and I share my uh, I take handwritten notes on an iPad and I share my screen, you know, on my iPad. Yeah. It's it we are analog creatures. And we're analog creatures right now in a in a digital world. Anything that you can do to make things more analog is gonna is going to create traction. And then I have people say, "Can you share those notes with me?" And I say, "Of course." And I send them a PDF. And the and, and the funny thing is, especially now that we don't seem to travel anymore, or not as much for every meeting, I think people still underestimate how important those face to face meetings were. Right? Yeah. Not yeah. for being there and showing your your appreciation that you came to the office and to get miles and points and hotel stays, <laughs> even though I appreciated those a lot, right? But I think it's just for the fact that you sit there, spend time with them and break bread, right? It's almost, I think almost the time in between the PowerPoint sessions are more important than the actual sales sessions, right? In the world of COVID, this might be a, a kind of a, a triggering thing to say. I think it's important to breathe the same air. Mm -hmm. There is something that happens simply when we breathe the same air, when yeah. when we smell each other. You know, whether whether we're conscious of smelling each other or not, there's there's something that happens when we're close enough to be animals in the same space. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I was, I was talking with a friend of mine, and, and we were lamenting the zoom culture, even when people are in the same town. Mm. Yeah. And they could <laughs> physically see each other. It was just much yeah. more convenient to get on zoom and have a quick call. I, I think, I think you're right. We'll see. We'll see how things correct over time. Um, this may, maybe isn't totally relevant to our conversation, but it, it makes me, what you're saying, Russ makes me think about another one of the things that I think leads to zoom fatigue is this, right. Is like, I've got to be looking at the camera. I've got to be, you know, this, this, like, I'm not allowed to break eye contact, but we never have in-person meetings like that. Right. So I've, I make a point very often of, of telling people that I'm in zoom meetings with, um, you know, I've got all my windows closed. This is the only window on my computer that's open. So if you have see me looking out over here, I am actually looking out the window. <laughs> I'm looking out the window. If I look over here, I am just I'm just looking at my fish. And and as uh, as people, we look sometimes away from the person we're talking to so that we can listen better. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we've got to give each other permission to we've, we've got to give ourselves the the boundaries, the the easy escapes by closing windows. And then give each other the grace to allow ceiling staring and floor yeah. staring. Um, and we can demonstrate our listening by our responsiveness. Now I want to zigzag a little bit though. How how was the start? How was it starting this company for you? How did you how did it happen? I I so initially we started this company thinking what we're gonna do is improv for business that's right i mean i remember reading all of this stuff about 
how many businesses and how many MBA programs are using improv to help people learn to communicate and collaborate more effectively? So that's what we were going to do. We were going to do improv for business. And I reached out to the best improviser I know, Adam Utley. And I said, Adam, let's do this thing, improv for business. And so we started doing that and it was fun and it was hard. And, um, and we got some really early wins. We made some quick early sales. It, I was like, this is going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. And, um, and then two things happened. One is we started noticing what I think of as false negatives, people who said, no, that won't work around here when I knew it would from experience, right? From the experience of the clients that we'd had already, I knew it could work and, and it was difficult and or impossible to get people off of the idea that that won't work around here. And then the other thing that happened was we got to know more and more about other companies that were doing improv for business. And what we were doing was so drastically different that we knew we had to stop using that brand because it was according to essentially what that brand, what that category had been created to be. It was not what we were doing. One of the most famous principles from improv that mm. is part of our work as well is yes. And, mm -hmm. and that's where most improv training begins is is this principle, yes, and whatever I say, you've got to say yes to it, and. Um, and uh, thank goodness for Adam, my business partner, because I likely would have started there uh, as well. And what Adam said to me is this, is, this is an advanced skill. We've got to build up to it. So people have been working with us in our workshop for three hours before we get to this principle. And it doesn't mean that I say yes to everything that you bring me. You know, if you were to say, all right, here's our marketing ploy, we go up to the top of the building and we, we, uh, we start telling people that if you come in, we'll give you a thousand bucks and then it doesn't matter what you do with it. Like you can walk right back out with a thousand bucks. Like that's not a good idea. Nobody's going to say yes to that. Uh, and in order to be a principal, this has got to be universally applicable. So yes, and doesn't mean that I agree to all of your suggestions. And as one of our clients said to us, the last time I learned this, uh, you know, people in my team would turn to me, uh, you know, turn to each other in meetings and they say things like, yes, and you're an idiot. And that's completely <laughs> antithetical to uh, what that principle is about. Yes. And I hate you. Oh, no, stop. Stop that. Just go back. Try again. Not to mention, yes, and is a very clunky thing to say. Yeah. It's not how we talk. And uh, I rarely say those two words back to back, though I use that principle all the time. Hey, um, let's go back to when you were 16. Okay. Uh, knowing all, everything that you know now, what would you tell your 16-year-old self about life, business, anything for that matter? What would be your three top tips to that young Aaron? It, it might be, uh, don't worry, enjoy the ride, right? That's it. Like two tips. Don't worry, enjoy the ride. It, it's going to be fine. Uh, it, it might be that. And it might be something, so, you know, I, I, I would hope, I, I don't know when the book, say, The Go-Giver came out, 
but it might be go read this book or it might be go read how to win friends and influence people, which maybe maybe was the best thing available at the time. Um, What I did not understand when people said things like your net worth is your your network is your net worth. I just didn't understand that. It sounded Machiavellian to me mm-hmm. and it sounded very uh, uh, objectifying. Right. It's like you are nothing but a resource to help me advance my ends. That's what people are. Uh, And so I didn't for the longest time, I didn't think about building a network. I didn't think about contributing to a network. I didn't think about my life as being dependent on other people because I value in part because I valued independence so much. And I now have a, just a much more organic, holistic understanding of, of that idea, right? How to win friends and influence people. Even that title put, put me off for the longest time. I didn't read that book uh, because I didn't want to win friends. I wanted to, you know, earn friends, maybe. Uh, I wanted to have friends and uh, I wanted to be influential, but I didn't want it to feel like what I was there to do, right? It's like, ah, I am going to win friends and influence people. Um, so it definitely feels so, like a curly mustache moment, right? Yeah. Exactly. Or like one of uh, the, yeah. the Simpsons <laughs> reference. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I started to figure it out late in life through podcasts. And, uh, and I think on one of those podcasts, I was recommended to read the, go read the book, The Go-Giver. And it's really transformed things for me. So if there was some way that I could impart to my 16-year-old self either the understanding that I have now or at least the seeds or or the the places to send myself where I would get those understandings, uh, I'm sure a lot of things would have been a lot easier. There would have been a less suffering. There would have been more success and more wealth and things like that uh, and more fun. And I, fun is, uh, I'm a big fan of fun. Uh, I kind of figure if, if it isn't fun, I'm probably not going to do it for very long. <laughs> one day, one day we're going to ask that question and somebody's going to go, that summer lifeguarding job, save every penny and buy Apple stock. That would be my <laughs> advice to my 16 year old self. <laughs> but the fact that we haven't heard it yet is probably indicative that having more money is probably not the the, the answer yeah. to everything in the whole world. Right? So, no. Yeah. No, I've, I've had, I feel like I have, uh, I mean, I've been wondering how I'm going to pay my mortgage uh, mm-hmm. or not mortgage. I've been, I've been wondering how I'm going to pay the rent, how I'm going to buy groceries. And I've been wondering what I'm going to do with all this. <laughs> and, um, and I have just about as much fun either way. There's a little, there's a little less fear <laughs> when I don't, when I'm not wondering how I'm going to, you know, cover my basic uh, biological needs. Uh, but just as much fun. I Good think stuff. That is a, that's yeah, that's a great ending to yeah. to this interview. Hey, I I really appreciate it. It's um, that conversation with Ryan Mobilehouse is slightly psyopsy. <laughs> 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 that's a new word, trademark. <laughs> psyopsy. TM. Uh, excellent. <laughs> this has been really fun for me. Uh, I I hope that. I haven't made this conversation too much like my career and that it was really nonlinear. Um, and I know I've talked about kind of the work that we do for companies in general. If, if 
if people want to be straight up better managers, then we also have a program that we run to bring people in from the outside of what, wherever they are, mm-hmm. help them become managers who drive performance with, with compassion and heart. And that's, you know, it's, I, I just, I feel like in doing all of these things, I'm doing my life's work. So it's always, it's always fun for me to talk about it. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you for enlightening us and for this uh, really fun uh, conversation. It was fantastic. Thanks, gents. Thanks, sir. All right. Thank you so much. And obviously for all of you guys uh, watching, 